2200 New Worlds and a song inspired by them this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Someone has to keep track of the thousands of exoplanets discovered by TESS, the transiting exoplanet survey satellite. That person is Natalia Guerrero. Natalia is lead author of the brand new paper announcing those new worlds. She'll talk to us about this great science and also about how it inspires much of her dramatic, musical, and radio artistry. We're also going to check in with Nancy Atkinson in moments. Nancy is tracking the tale of that Venusian phosphine. New yet very old data backs its existence. I also have an especially good time with Bruce Betts this week, so I hope you'll stay for what's up. As always, we're grateful to all of you who listen, grateful to those who write to us, and extraordinarily grateful to everyone who leaves us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. I hope you'll consider helping us out this way if you haven't. I don't know if it's a moonrise or a moonset. Either way, it's like none I've ever seen. It's that Martian moon Phobos peeking through the clouds above Mount Sharp in a photo snapped by the Curiosity rover. You'll find it at planetary.org slash downlink, where it is followed by these headlines and much more. As some expected, the Biden administration has nominated former Florida Senator Bill Nelson to take on the job of NASA administrator. Nelson flew on the space shuttle when he was still in office back in 1986. The next step is confirmation by his old congressional body. Ingenuity is several steps closer to takeoff. By the time you read this, the Mars helicopter may have been dropped off by Perseverance up there in Jezero Crater. We may be just days from the first flight by a rotorcraft on the Red Planet, or anywhere else other than Earth. By the way, some of you noticed that I forgot last week to post a link to the virtual video drive around a Martian outcrop assembled by Matthias Malmer. It's still highly recommended, and you'll find it on this week's episode page, at planetary.org slash radio. Veteran space journalist and author Nancy Atkinson writes for Universe Today, Ad Astra, and the Planetary Society. She penned the lead article in the new March Equinox edition of the Planetary Report, the Society's magazine that is available free to all at planetary.org, though our members get the printed version. Her piece is titled, The Quest for Life on Venus. Is Something Alive on the Planet Next Door? This would have been reason enough to bring Nancy back to Planetary Radio, but now there's even more Venusian news. Nancy, welcome back to the show. I think I had only just finished your great piece in uh, the Planetary Report when this update had to come out on our website, March 25th article titled, NASA Mission to Venus in 1978 May Have Detected Phosphine, a Gas Related to Life. Man, this story just keeps evolving, doesn't it? It really does. You know, there's there's just a lot to this story. And it's it's really been fun to watch the science play out and just see how everyone is tackling this and looking at the data and, and giving it a go. Well, we will make both of these articles available, of course, the digital version of the Planetary Report. It's the March Equinox issue or edition that is available on our website, but also we'll have a link on this week's show page at planetary.org slash radio to this March 25th uh, update article. It's a recurring theme, of course, how ancient 
if I can be so bold data, once again, is proving useful in very current cutting edge science. Right. You know, I think there really is something endearing about these old planetary missions because they tried and accomplished some pretty audacious things. So the fact that old data from the Pioneer Venus multiprobe was robust enough where it could be mined to look for chemicals or elements that it really wasn't designed to look for, you know, that's just something really special. So um, hats off to Rakesh Mogul and his team at Cal Poly Pomona for, for doing just that. Give us an idea of what Rakesh and his team had to do to get at this data, to make it useful again. Well, he was telling me that at first, all they had was some tables in a few old publications. Uh, later on, NASA released some additional archival data to take a look at, but there really wasn't a lot of contextual information that they had to go on. Originally, this instrument, this mission sent down several probes down into the atmosphere of Venus. And this probe was the largest one, and it went down on a parachute through the atmosphere. Originally, the team was just looking for kind of common things like water or carbon dioxide. So for them to mine the data and and just kind of see uh, what Rakesh Mogul told me was the data within the data, and what they found was like a, a phosphorus-based chemical. Phosphine is what fits it, it fits the data the best. So that's that's why they're they're kind of confirming what Jane Greaves and her team found. And as you know, we've talked to Jane Greaves a couple of times last year when her findings were first uh, published and then uh, her answer to some of the criticism that was coming in. And people can read more about that in your article in the, the Planetary Report, of course. We're still not talking yet about proof that the phosphine is there, right? Much less proof that life is creating it. No, I think this story is ongoing. Really, what it's going to take is a mission to Venus, another new mission. I talked to so many people in the planetary science community, and almost everyone is saying we really need a new mission to Venus. You know, I talked to David Grinspoon from the Planetary Science Institute, and he said, you know, there are a thousand and one reasons that we should go to Venus with a new mission. And even if there's not phosphine, there's still a thousand reasons. Well, your coverage hopefully is going to help that case, Nancy. It has made quite a splash, almost off the charts. Sure indicates uh, that at least the people who pay attention to Planetary Society channels care a lot about uh, that second uh, second rock from the sun. Yes, you know, and the phosphine story was just, you know, it was a, a bright spot in a year that wasn't so bright. Between the phosphine story and now the the old data from the old Venus mission, I just think that uh, makes for a great story. Thank you, Nancy. Really appreciate it and uh, hope to be talking again soon. Thanks a lot, Matt. Space journalist Nancy Atkinson. We haven't checked in with TESS for a while. The Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite is well into its extended mission, another two years of scanning the Milky Way for worlds circling other stars. Natalia Guerrero works with TESS at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, the lead institution for this brilliantly successful mission. Natalia is the TESS Objects of Interest, our TOI manager, and the communications lead for TESS at MIT. As you'll hear, my interview with her was already lined up when the team dropped a science bombshell I didn't know was coming. That's just one factor that makes the conversation you're about to hear so interesting. Add to it Natalia's other life as a playwright, artist, and radio host, all of which we talked about a few days ago. 
Welcome to Planetary Radio, and congratulations on the publication of this uh, terrific paper, which uh, I'm sure we're going to be spending some time talking about. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. You know, when we set this interview up, you didn't mention that you were going to be the lead author of a paper coming out actually, as we speak, just about 24 hours ago. It really is an amazing publication. And so I have to say again, congratulations. Thank you. The title page went on the refrigerator right away last night. <laughs> that's great. At your mom's house? Because uh, yes. I know that's where you're talking to us from. Oh, she she has a right to be very proud. Um, more than 2,200 candidates to add to those that were discovered previously by Kepler and other techniques, absolutely amazing crop of new exoplanets, or at least candidate exoplanets. How many of these appear to maybe be somewhat similar to uh, the one that we live on? That's a good question. So when tests began, we predicted that we would find several hundred planets that would be smaller than about Neptune size, so four times the size of Earth. And so far, so good. We are definitely finding planets in that regime. And now the trick is to, within that set, look for planets that are interesting to astronomers for different reasons. So, of course, everyone's interested in habitable zone exoplanets, but there's also hot Jupiters and different other types of planets that uh, look nothing like the ones in our solar system. And that's also very exciting to study. Well, you can't blame us for having, you know, a, a sort of biased interest in the worlds that look like our own. But yeah, every one of these worlds is a terrific find. I, I read that you think of this as sort of a, a to-do list. What do, you, what do you mean by that? At the risk of stressing everybody out, uh, I really do think that the TY catalog, a beautiful way to look at it, is as uh, a list of things to go after and explore. Each object has its own story. And even the targets that end up being false positives, that's a little detective novel, each one of them. I think as we keep adding targets to this list, it means a new object for someone in the follow-up community to go after and observe with a ground-based telescope. It means many more years, hopefully, of observation with ground-based and space-based telescopes. So we hope that each one of these planets has its own story. The other way I like to think of it is I am always a machine of creating more work for not only myself, but other people. So hopefully this leads to a lot of good, interesting work. With all those giant new Earth-based telescopes coming online before too long, and fingers crossed, James Webb Space Telescope, that I've been talking for years with your, your colleague, Sarah Seeger, who's second author on the paper and, and others about, we're all hoping it's going to unfold just fine late this year and start poking around. Do you have hope that we're going to be able to do these follow-up observations at a new, much deeper level and, and maybe learn something about the atmospheres of some of these worlds? Definitely. I am so excited both for the ground-based and space-based telescopes that are coming in the next decade because there's this cycle that happens of as tests and other survey missions find candidates that are good for atmospheric follow-up and characterization, we are also able to say, hey, we need telescopes that can follow these up. And as we get more information from James Webb and other ground-based telescopes that can look into the 
chemical fingerprint of these planets' atmospheres, we can say, we found this information now. Let's go find more planets that look like this or don't look like this. Our audience has been hearing about the search for exoplanets really from the beginning of this show more than 18 years ago. But I think it would probably be a good idea to remind us of how TESS makes these discoveries. It does it very much in the way that uh, that Kepler spacecraft, that wonderful pioneer, uh, doesn't it? Yes, that's right. TESS uses what Kepler used, the same measurement method called the transit method, in which essentially a planet is aligned in its orbit um, around its star from our point of view, such that as it's going around its host star, it blocks out a tiny fraction of that star's light. And TESS can detect up to about a 1% reduction in the light from that star. So we're not actually seeing the planet directly, but we are able to see this little blip in the amount of light that we're measuring from this star. So Kepler stared for a long time at one small, relatively small section of the sky. How does TESS improve on that? So TESS is a nearly all-sky survey. In the first two years of operation from summer 2018 to summer to just last summer, summer 2020, TESS observed about 70% of the night sky. And so that was covering these overlapping long rectangular strips of uh, the sky called sectors. And it stared at each one of those for a month. So we have a time-lapse movie, basically, of those sections of the sky for a month. And now we're in our extended mission, which means that we are reobserving the southern hemisphere, the sky visible from Australia, South America, and we're able to reobserve that area of the sky, cover up the little gaps between the sectors that we missed the first time. And when we go to the north later this summer, we're going to be able to observe part of the northern hemisphere as well as a part of the sky that Tess has never observed before. We're going to be observing the ecliptic plane, basically the area of the sky that we weren't able to cover in the first part of the primary mission. And this is exciting because this overlaps actually with Kepler, with the K2 mission, which observed several campaigns in the ecliptic. So this will be really exciting for astronomers who have favorite planets in those areas. So when you talk about the ecliptic in this case, we're talking about, you know, right along what the plane of the Milky Way galaxy and and the ecliptic of our, our solar system as well, where you would expect to see a lot more planets because there are a lot more stars. Yes, that's right. Those areas which Tess has already looked at before, has stared at for a month, you'll be repeating some of that. What What is the value in that? Each of the sectors overlaps at the southern and northern ecliptic poles. So we get almost an entire year of observations at those poles, which is the Tess Continuous Viewing Zone. So that's already able to give us multiple transits of planets that have periods where they're transiting multiple times in that year. But when we come back to them a second time in the extended mission, we're able to see, are these planets changing in how they're orbiting? Does this reveal additional, quote unquote, hidden planets? There's something called transit timing variations, where additional planets in the system can cause delays or differences so that the planet isn't orbiting at exactly its period each time. So these are really interesting additional pieces of information that we're able to get with a longer baseline of data. 
complex stuff. I mean, multiple planets working with a star, and, and in some cases, a fairly small star. Makes me think of that classic uh, problem known as the three-body problem uh, and trying to figure out all this stuff. It's, it's amazing that, uh, that it can be done just from looking at uh, the dimming light from this, these distant stars. It's really amazing to see how much, I guess, the scientific imagination builds up this picture that all of these things are measurements, the mass of a planet, the period, how often it transits. But using all of those numbers, we can build for ourselves a picture of what this planet may look like. And one day we may be able to actually directly image a planet. But until then, this is what we're working with. Fingers crossed. I love that phrase, scientific imagination. I think we're going to come back later in this conversation to the topic of imagination and that intersection of science and art that I know is also something that you love. We're certainly not going to be able to talk about more than two or three of these 2,200 candidate <laughs> worlds. But I, I hope you can introduce us to, to some of them. Do you have any that jump up to the top of your list that you might want to talk about? Sure. One that I was looking at recently was in the last couple of months, we've gotten a few planets that were initially discovered by TESS that have gotten additional follow-up by the KEOPS mission. And KEOPS is another telescope, space telescope, that is it's about the same size as TESS, which I find amusing. We often describe TESS as being about the size of a refrigerator. And Chaos is also another refrigerator in space looking for exoplanets. <laughs> and so with Chaos, we were able to follow up this planet, um, this set of planet candidates called TOI-178. This ended up being a six-planet system, which was really interesting. And we alerted the first three planets from this system back in the um, second sector of test data. So two months after the after we really started taking science data, then Chaos went and stared at just this system in a very focused way and was able to get much higher detail information because that's the only system it was looking at. It looked at it for 11 days straight. So mm. from that, they were able to pick out that there are actually six planets in this system, three from that test found initially and an additional three. And they're calling this a Trojan system because it sort of has the same resonance pattern as the moons of Jupiter. Fascinating. And we should give credit to uh, Chaos, which is a spacecraft put up there by the European Space Agency. But it's great to hear how TESS and Chaos can, can complement each other. Definitely. It's really wonderful to have a dialogue between this mission and our own. Any other worlds that you... I, I, let me suggest one to you, TOI-700D. I was wondering if you were going to bring that one up because you touched on it before, it looked like. I'm partial to those Earth-sized worlds in their Goldilocks zone. Definitely. Yeah, so that was another really exciting system. And I found it uh, an amazing discovery, not only because it was the first habitable zone Earth-sized planet that TESS found, but also because out of the three papers that came out on the system, two of them were led by junior scientists. One was a grad student, mm. one was a student who wasn't even in grad school at the when she began this paper. Wow. And that was exciting because it just shows that this is such a new field and there's so much work to do 
we really want to welcome and bring all hands on deck for it. Love it when we hear about uh, young researchers at the beginnings of their careers who are uh, at the forefront of, of what becomes great published work. There's one more of these I want to bring up that uh, the uh, an article that I found about your paper described it as an extremely rare oddity, uh, and that's TOI 849b, enormous dense remnant core of a gas giant. And the, the one that, that's atmosphere may have been stripped away. 40 times the mass of Earth, but only three times the diameter. Yeah, so TOI-849b is really interesting because it's an interesting combination of the mass and radius of a planet. TESS is really wonderful because it's giving us all of these candidate exoplanets that we can go and with other ground-based telescopes measure their mass. Once you have the mass of an exoplanet, you can start asking interesting questions like, this planet is very small, but very massive. Why is that? Or this planet is really big, but really fluffy. Why is that? This planet occupies an interesting area because it is really hot and it's also Neptune. There aren't very many of those that have been discovered to date. And so we're trying to understand, is that because those just don't form or those just don't evolve that way? Or is this uh, something that we're just not able to detect them for whatever reason? I always find it interesting to see those little spaces in our comparisons of mass and radius or period and radius and see where are we filling things in or what's what's left to discover, what's not there. I used the description from this article uh, that called TOI-849b an extremely rare oddity. It took me a few minutes before the real import of that statement hit me. And it's this, that we've gone in a handful of decades from uh, Michelle Mayor's uh, discovery of the first exoplanet to knowing about so many now that we can recognize one as especially rare or weird. That's that's progress in my book. Exactly. It's this luxury of having thousands of planets to compare to each other. If I counted anywhere near correctly, there were over 100 scientists listed as, as your co-authors. It's a real who's who of uh, exoplanet research. Do you want to say something about this this global team? Yes, the TESS collaboration is enormous. And part of that is because the data leaves so much room for possibility. And so we have folks at MIT and Harvard who are working on leading the effort on downlinking and analyzing the data and also coordinating the follow-up observations from the ground we work with various NASA partners for data analysis and planning observations, and also working with guest investigators. And so it's this huge team and it's international. And so actually one of the things that we were worried about was when uh, the pandemic started to peak last spring was, okay, what is this going to do for tests? And what is this going to do for exoplanets in general? And so although a lot of observatories did end up having to shut down or reduce their staff, and so we slowed down on the follow-up, we were able to continue analyzing and creating TOIs because so many of us are already scattered across several time zones that going to fully remote was a lot easier transition than I would have expected initially. What's ahead? I mean, you're well into your, <laughs> yeah, you're well into the extended mission, but you got a ways to go. 
Uh, I assume the Tess is in good health and uh, still doing a great job of staring at these stars. What is still to come? Yes, Tess is doing great. So we're really excited for the fourth year of Tess operation. I mentioned before that we're going to be observing the ecliptic plane. Uh, but after that, Tess is really stable and it hardly uses any fuel. So it's possible that Tess can continue observing for decades to come and keep building up this time lapse, this movie of what's going on across the sky over a period of many years. And maybe that'll even give us uh, information about planets that we only have seen transit their star once. And maybe they have a many hundreds day transiting period. And in a couple of years, we'll catch another transit and we'll be able to constrain that period. So that's what I'm really excited about is finding these far out planets that we can hopefully detect later on with tests. Nice to know that we have a, a lot to look forward to. More from Natalia Guerrero is coming up, including samples of her musical and theatrical work. Space exploration doesn't just happen. In a democracy where you're competing against other priorities and resources, we need to maintain a constant engagement in the political process to ensure the types of missions we want to see in the future. I'm Casey Dreyer. I'm the chief advocate here at the Planetary Society. I'm asking you to consider making a donation to our program of space policy and advocacy that works every single day to promote your values in space science and exploration to the people who make the decisions in our democracy. Your donations keep us independent, keep us engaged, and keep us effective. Go to planetary.org slash takeaction. That's planetary.org slash takeaction. Thank you. Now, I mentioned that beautiful map, which we will put on this week's show page at planetary.org slash radio, that shows where Tess has looked across the sky already. It is, to me, that's art. It's a, it's a thing of beauty. I said that we needed to talk about this intersection of art, art and science. It's something that I think you're pretty fond of. Yes, definitely. I am always really interested in the dialogue between art and astronomy. Often I'll find myself thinking about technical problem in astronomy, and my mind will Im immediately start making metaphors as a way to explain it, not only to myself, but to others, and say like, would this be a good metaphor? Would this be a good way to think about this? So that's in one direction. And then in the other direction, trying to bring... Uh, new ways of thinking about astronomy to astronomers. So that's what I'm really interested in as well, is trying to reframe what we're doing such that we can maybe make new connections or new insights that we wouldn't have been able to if we're just looking at the data, doing analysis. I hear this kind of thing from so many scientists, but very few of them who have their hands in as many uh, artistic media as you do. And, <laughs> and I want to talk a little bit about this. Uh, maybe start with telling us something about this group of playwrights called Catalyze. Yes. MIT is in partnership. It has this really unique partnership with the Central Square Theater, which is just a 10-minute walk from our campus. Uh, there's this collaboration of scientists and theater makers of various sorts uh, called Catalyst. A few years ago, some friends and I put together a sort of satellite group called the Catalyst Collective. And so what we do is we try and work on plays and work with each other. Many of us are MIT alumni and have a strong technical background, but also really love theater. 
The group has gone on to continue to produce readings and short plays, often going um, related thematically to what's the what the theater is putting on that season. Uh, but it's this really interesting thing where all of these works of theater have come out of this collaborative, both in the one I'm involved with and more broadly, that make theater that is about uh, the history of science and physics, problems of the future, and sort of speculate as well on what current discoveries are going to bring. To get more specific, I, I read about and even got a little sample of uh, something called the Drake Equation Plays, based, of course, on the famous Drake Equation. Frank Drake, one of my heroes, a uh, past guest on, on this program, and you contributed something to it called the Megahertz Express, which is pretty entertaining. Can you say something about that? And then I'm hoping that we can maybe uh, share a very short excerpt from Megahertz Express. Yes. This was a short play that I wrote as part of this Drake Equation series where I wanted to play around with this idea of which wavelengths are we searching on for signs of life. And I chose megahertz because that's where you're getting into the radio and that's where SETI, that's their playground. Thinking about how would different civilizations at different periods in time of their evolution be talking to each other. And I ride the the T, the MBTA train to work every day. And so I thought, wouldn't this be interesting if this took place on a train? These people having these conversations that talk about sort of intermingling of civilizations. And those are the last few terms on the Drake equation, like the likelihood of interacting. Here is just a very short sample, a really short clip from Megahertz Express, uh, Natalia Guerrero's uh, uh, little play that she has just been talking to you about. This was uh, done as, as part of a, uh, an onstage dramatic reading. Yes, that's right. I have some images we took of where we live, what it looks like, how to find this, or this um, rover. It's small, and it can't go super far. Oh, look at that! It's awesome! Guys! Oh, hey there! I, this is my spaceship. Oh, that's incredible. Here, let's race the... Ready, set, go! The enthusiasm of the first exchange of commonality. Yeah, this is our first time on this frequency. Baltasar offers Cam to find the record. Would you like a recording? Uh, sure. I don't have anything new in school, just some data from where we live. Uh, I was showing it to that other traveler, Anne. I'm traveling with these two. Can I see what we're next? It is good. A contemplation of another world. They just gave it to me. Let me see if I have another in my bag. They've been floating around for years. We have seen so many young planets, each different in their own way. Really? From flying around? Yes. Observing from afar, choosing with whom we share our stories, we find that has been the most successful technique. So there was just a very short clip from Megahertz Express from our guest today, Natalia Guerrero. That's not all you do. You've gotten involved with uh, music as well. Tell us a little bit about songs from extrasolar spaces. Then we'll tell people how later in the program they're going to be able to hear one particular short song titled, gee, who could have guessed, Exoplanets. <laughs> yes. 
Uh, Songs from Extrasolar Spaces was a concert that I wanted to create to celebrate the first year of Tess's discoveries, not only to communicate the magnitude of these discoveries to the public, but also to invite astronomers who are attending the Tess Science Conference that summer to come in and reflect on what it means to make these discoveries and hopefully spark some new connections, make some new ideas happen. And so I worked with a composer at MIT, Elena Rohr. She and I talked about the text. I put together a text for her, which was a found text from a bunch of papers that had come out in that first year from tests. So all of the text is pulled from titles of papers. And I arranged Ah. them in a way that she could work with. And I love writing librettos. I minored in writing as an uh, undergraduate. And this, is, this was really exciting for me to participate in that way. And she composed this piece of music. And we also put together a program of other pieces that were related to discovery and to space. And so she wrote two. And then we pulled a piece from John Harbison, another from Meredith Monk. We also had a piece from Molly Heron about various facets of astronomy and discovery. With these pieces, uh, we had them performed by a music ensemble, a vocal ensemble, the Lorelei Ensemble, who had actually met through uh, my radio show, Voicebox, a few years prior. That was the vocal element, but I also wanted a visual element. And so I worked on a piece of video art that was a composite of frames from the test images showing the changes in light exaggerated of the stars going from observation to observation. And I merged those with little uh, videos of reflections and optical effects that my mom had taken. She's a video artist. And so it was this multimedia collaboration using a lot of different connections. And I brought this together on the stage at MIT for this audience. And it was this really special event where all of these different people from all of these different backgrounds could sit and watch and experience this distilled test results in this space. I wish I had been there. It uh, <laughs> On the audience, many people out there, regulars know that I love this stuff. Uh, this has all been an elaborate tease, basically, because uh, we're not going to play that uh, song called Exoplanets until the end of the today's episode. So you got to wait and go through what's up with Bruce, and then we will close the show with it, at least for you podcast listeners. Anybody listening on the radio, you're only going to be able to get a little piece of it, but uh, you can go to this week's show at planetary.org slash radio and, and hear the whole tune. I love that some of this came out of the fact that you have or had, is it, a radio show? Uh, because it really sounds like, as I as I looked at what you're up to, that you love to do the same kind of radio that I love to do. I mean, periodically we do planetary radio live, and I love putting performers on stage as a part of that as we talk to scientists. Mm-hmm. Does that sound like the kind of thing that uh, that you've tried to achieve? It does. My background in radio is at MIT's college radio station, WMBR. I started actually as an undergraduate with an idea for a radio play called Girl in Space, which was actually about uh, two rival missions trying to going through sort of the process of, are we really going to land on an exoplanet? And some of the anthropological and cultural ethical questions behind that. 
from there, I was hooked. I love the idea of performing live music, live theater on the radio. And so my first show was called Charles River Variety, and it was a live music sketch comedy variety show. Musicians from Berklee College of Music in the Cambridge area, as well as sketches that I wrote with myself and a team of friends. And from there, I noticed that I really loved vocal music, and this was something that I wanted to sort of explore further. So that show evolved into the show that I had until about 2018 called Voice Box. And Voice Box was this deep dive on vocal music in all of its forms. So opera, acapella, everything. With that, I was also trying to work in science themes. And so sometimes I would bring colleagues on. In fact, um, I had a fellow astronomer, Sarah Ballard, come on one evening and she brought a playlist of songs that had been playing at instrumental points in her career, like when she finished her thesis, when she discovered her first exoplanet. And she also plays guitar. And so I asked her to play guitar for me on her on the show. It was this interesting portrait, again, of an astronomer who has these interests. There is nothing as exciting as live in front of an audience, is there? No, I really love it. <laughs> you and me both. Natalia, what's ahead for you? We, we know Tess is going to keep doing its work, and I assume you will continue to lead to manage that uh, team that uh, deals with the objects of interest. But what else is uh, happening with you? I I noted in your bio that uh, you used to be, maybe still are, involved with the attempt to understand that crazy stuff called dark matter. That's right. Yes, I have a background in particle physics and dark matter research from my undergraduate years. And I'm always looking for new ways to incorporate uh, dark matter discovery and that detection into uh, what I do now. And so I'm broadly interested in uh, new missions that will allow us to look for uh, these sorts of signatures. I'm also interested in continuing to work as an artist slash astronomer. I'm continuing to work on plays that explore these sort of human themes and scientific themes. And so that's something that I'm actually really interested in doing Uh, This past spring, I was able to, you mentioned the test image uh, before of the full sky, what we'd covered, and I was able to advise a student, a high school student, who was a graphic design student or interested in design, but wanted to also understand science. And so we worked together on a visualization of all of the test objects of interest on this night sky. And that student, Greggy Bazile, is now doing his undergraduate in design. And so I'm very proud of him. And this lit a fire in me to say, I really love this work of helping people think about both things at the same time, art and astronomy. So I'd like to be able to have opportunities in the future to continue to do that. Please keep that up, even as you continue to lead this team that is discovering all these new worlds, literally new worlds across our galaxy exciting stuff. I'd love to do some live radio with you someday, uh, Natalia. Let's, let's, let's do it. that opportunity. Yeah, let's go for it. Um, thank you so much. And congratulations once again, not just to you, but to the entire test team. Uh, keep up the great work. And uh, we look forward to following uh, not just uh, Tess's career, but, but yours as well. I hope we'll talk again. Thanks for having me on. MIT's Natalia Guerrero. I'll be right back with Bruce and What's Up. 
Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. The chief scientist of the Planetary Society joins us once again to tell us about the night sky and all the other great stuff that he brings us in this uh, closing segment of our show. Welcome back. Thank you, Matt. Always good to be back. It seems like we talked only a week ago. Yeah, I know. Time flies. Congratulations, by the way. I hear that you will at least soon be eligible for a vaccination joining us, those of us who uh, have already completed both rounds. Yeah, I'm very excited. Very excited. Never been this excited for a vaccine before or a stick in the (laughs) arm, but I'm excited. Glad to hear you're doing it, and I hope everybody out there listening to this is looking forward to the same. If you haven't already, if you have, congratulations. Congratulations on I'm sure a gorgeous night sky, too, that Bruce is going to tell us about. It's true. It's wonderful and does not require a pain in your arm. And so go <laughs> ahead and enjoy. <laughs> or anywhere else. Socially distanced and uh, masked uh, and look up in the sky. And yes, or anywhere else. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, check out in the evening, southwest, getting lower and lower as time is going on. Mars looking like a bright kind of bright reddish star and nearby is the reddish Aldebaran of Taurus. In the pre-dawn, we've got really bright Jupiter with uh, yellowish Saturn above it in the east. And that's uh, still low, but getting higher in the sky. It'll be, that'll be visible for months. Uh, you can check out the moon hanging out near them on April 6th and April 7th. We move on to this week in space history, uh, 1968. The oft-forgotten Apollo 6 launched this week in 1968. It was the last uncrewed Apollo test mission. How'd that come out? Interesting. It, it came out well enough that they decided they could put humans on the next one, uh, but they had some significant pogo problems. I forgot the exact term, pogo oscillations in the, uh, they had engines shut down, but they were able to compensate with other engines. So it was, uh, it was a good test of things not going right. <laughs> and and it, brought, it brought the capsule back safely uh, with the high speed return and the like. And on to bigger and better things. Here too. All right, on to random space fact. So Tess, I think, Our listeners have heard of that, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. It has a fascinating orbit. It orbits Earth twice during the time the moon orbits once. It's in a two-to-one resonance with the moon, and it gives them uh, unobstructed imagery of the northern and southern hemisphere skies, uh, but also brings it in a highly elliptical orbit, brings it close to Earth so they can dump large amounts of data in a short period of time, then go back out towards uh, Apogee and take lots of data. But the two-to-one lunar resonant orbit is uh, is spiffy keen. Orbital mechanic that I am not, and I hope you can help me with this, is the moon actually influencing tests, or are they just put it in that orbit because it had these advantages? I mean, does the moon somehow maintain that resonance? And yes, huh. and no. In order, I think I got your question. So they put it in that orbit because it meets, uh, helps them do the observations that they're after as well as doing the data transfer. I believe they used the moon for uh, an orbital assist to change their orbit initially. But then once they reach the stable orbit they wanted to be in, they actually go out towards the moon's orbit when the moon is 
90 degrees away in its orbit. Then the next time it's the opposite, 90 degrees, sort of. Anyway, they tried to minimize the effects of the moon so that their orbit is nice and stable for a good 20 years or so without using uh, much of any fuel uh, to modify it. Fascinating. Thank you. That's exactly the kind of guidance I was hoping for. <laughs> you know, I spent a lot more time preparing because I never know what you're going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> it's good for you. <laughs> it is. I learned neat stuff like that. All right. Let's go on to the trivia question unless you have another snarky comment for me. No, no that's it for this week. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I asked you, what was the Hayabusa 2 small carry-on impactors projectile made of? The SCI, what was the projectile made of? How do we do, Matt? We had a really good response. A few people mentioned a tantalum impactor, not the one that you're looking for, and they by and large knew that. But I guess there was, there was this other impactor, which <laughs> is not the correct answer? That is the correct answer of what is not the correct answer. Uh, <laughs> yes, how cool is a space mission that carries multiple things to shoot at an asteroid? Uh, yeah, the, the tantalum was a projectile fired from up close where the sample collection horn, the cone-shaped thing, would come down on the surface. Then they would fire an impactor to actually kick material into their sample mechanism. Whereas the small carry-on impactors one I asked about is where they fired from a distance a, using a shape charge. They launched a two kilometer per second projectile to create what ended up being like a 14 meter crater on the surface so they could expose material that hadn't been sitting on the surface for a long time. And what was that projectile made of, Matt? Here is the answer from funny guy Mel Powell in California who uh, did his best to trip me up with this one. Takes a minute, but I think it's worth it. The small carry-on impactor and its projectile. It's not a bell, so it has no clapper. It's not all that happy, so we can't call it chipper. It's not ingenuity, so it isn't a chopper. It's not bound for Europa, so it isn't a clipper. It isn't a fish, so you can't call it kipper. Not even exotic. And that is the capper. The projectile is made of just boring old copper. And now the challenge to bat for the big finish no clapper, not chipper, not chopper, not clipper, not kipper. The capper, it's copper. Wow. <laughs> wow, it should be a jingle for people who sell copper. Yeah, we should we should sell it to the the, the copper consortium, I I guess. He's right, right? Yes, he is correct. Copper is indeed uh, what was on the inside of the shape charge, which then turns it into a two kilometer per second projectile that slammed into the surface. We had a few people like Elijah Marshall and others uh, who asked, why copper? Because of that wonderful poem, I think. It just they, <laughs> if, if that, that sounds fun. No, uh, it's a couple of reasons, but basically it's because you can distinguish in your observations what the copper is that's in the, your spectra compared to what's in the asteroid, which also probably doesn't have much copper, but, and then you also want something that you can put inside your explosive device and that you can mold and that melts and reforms. And so it has all the properties you want with the good strength and all, all that good stuff. And you can get rid of it in your measurements and know what was your projectile and what wasn't. So if a flying saucer was detected coming toward us and it looked aggressive and was made out of copper, we should probably shoot an asteroid at it. 
You follow my logic? Yeah, I follow it as as far as I want to. Um, <laughs> you don't need to go any further. I, I will mention another thing, which is uh, a much, 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 much more massive copper object was used by Deep Impact, NASA's Deep Impact, to slam into a comet in 2005 and used for the same reasons. But that was a, a multi-hundred kilogram hunk of copper. And another big impactor coming up, right? I mean, I hope that pretty soon we're going to be uh, catching up on the DART mission, still slated to launch uh, late this year. Yeah, we're going to slam an even bigger thing into a small asteroid. That was a big thing into a big comet that did change its course oh, oh so little. And this will be a much more significant change in a slamming into an asteroid. I had another funny guy, Robert Klein in Arizona. You can't stop me, Copper. I'm going to blow a giant hole in this asteroid. Yeah. And you'll never catch me, Copper, because I'm going to two more asteroids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My very I, bad Edward G. Robinson. No, that was, that, was, that, was a, that was a very good, very bad impersonation of Edward G. Robinson. <laughs> Here's another one, interesting one from Daniel Sorkin in New York. Copper is one of those metals that humans started using very early. As a matter of fact, Copper was the first metal that uh, humans discovered circa 9,000 BCE. You could say we've come full circle with Hayabusa too. You could. You don't have to. I am proud to let you know that our winner this week is Jill, as in G-I-L-L-E-S, Jill Lachance in Vancouver, British Columbia, who indeed, indeed said it was Copper. I love that this one was picked out by random.org because now I get to read this. Double congratulations are due, as you'll hear in a moment. Planifest 21 was a blast, and I met the girl of my dreams there, too. Can't thank you enough, TPS, at Astra. Wow. <laughs> Be sure to invite us to the wedding, Jill. Tinder and eHarmony got nothing on us. <laughs> That's why we're here, to bring people together uh, in vacuum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is, but not necessarily in a romantic way, but whatever works. I'll close with this uh, from Gene Lewin in Washington. A transition metal was selected for this task to penetrate Ryugu's skin, excavating what the surface masked, number 29 in your program, from Cuprum. Its symbol came, projected by the SCI, and copper is its name. Nicely done. Metal! <laughs> We're ready to move on. I, I got another good prize for uh, the winner of this new one. Name all the people who flew in space while serving in the U.S. Congress. They were uh, sitting members of Congress, to use that odd phrasing, at the time they flew. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest to get us your entry. There's uh, something that uh, is in the news, of course. I will yeah. Uh, yeah, I will I will say no more. You have until Wednesday, April 7 at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us this answer. And you know, we've been we have these books piling up at headquarters where I still have not been for now over a year. Uh, but I get sent pictures, so I know that we have a copy of the Backyard Astronomer's Field Guide, How to Find the Best Objects in the Night Sky, or that the Night Sky has to offer, excuse me, by David Dickinson, who has done some good stuff. He's co-author of the Universe Today Guide to Viewing the Cosmos, which I think we also gave away. It's from Page Street uh, Publishing, 
And apparently it's good for both hemispheres, not east and west, north and south. And uh, <laughs> Seth Shostak uh, recommends it pretty highly. He's got a nice quote uh, on the uh, Amazon listing. So there you go. That can be yours if uh, random.org picks you out and you come up with uh, the answer Bruce is looking for. All right. Everybody go out there, look up the night sky and think about your favorite copper object of all time. Thank you and good night. My favorite copper object has just come back to me. It was on that cave trip that I made with Penny Boston, Ace uh, uh, Spelunker, and a whole bunch of other people. When she pointed out to us on the wall of the cave in Carlsbad Caverns, the bacteria that were eating copper and excreting copper oxide. So it's not like it was my property, but uh, I own that memory. So thank you, Bruce, for bringing it back. Yum. <laughs> yeah, it was delicious. <laughs> he's, he's Bruce Metz, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, who joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its worldly members, we're saving a world for you at planetary.org slash join. Mark Hilverde is our associate producer. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. But what you're hearing in the background right now is Exoplanets from composer Elena Ruhr and our guest Natalia Guerrero, performed by the Lorelei Ensemble. Enjoy Ad Astra. <laughs>